Welcome to Clearing the Haze, where we discuss the truth about vaping and key issues impacting the vapor industry. My name is Capel Rourke, President of the Board of Directors of the Smoke-Free Alternatives Trade Association, and your guest host for the show. Today, we are pleased to welcome Congressman Tom Cole, representing the 4th District of Oklahoma. Representative Cole was elected to Congress in 2002 and has served in the House Appropriations Committee, where he is Chairman of the Subcommittee on Labor, Health, and Human Services, Education, and Related Agencies. He is also a member of the Rules and Budget Committees. Cole is widely regarded as one of the GOP's top political strategists and is vying for an eighth term this November. Many in the vaping industry know him for his bill, H.R. 2058, and the Cole-Bishop Amendment, which we will discuss later on in the podcast. Congressman Cole, welcome to the show. Hey, Cap. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Well, let me start off by congratulating you on your recent primary win. And uh, I know uh, the elections and and, and those things can be tough battles, so, so congratulations on that step and, and your road to re-election this fall. Well, thanks very much. Uh, you know, obviously, a lot of good people had more to do that with me, and uh, I'm very happy to have uh, been successful. Now, for those who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in public service and some of the areas and responsibilities you have and how it relates to health, small business, and even vaping? Sure. It's a long and tangled story, as these things often are. I'm originally a uh, uh, an academic. I have a doctorate in British history, and I was going to be a classic professor, but uh, my mom was very interested in local politics. Uh, I got heavily involved and uh, ran for uh, local office in 1976 when I was in graduate school. I didn't do very much, and she lost very narrowly, and uh, they, uh, that there's nothing worse than your mother's watch party the night you lose an election. You haven't done much. The guilt is overwhelming. So I, I promised, uh, I talked to her because I, I could tell what had gone wrong. She basically tried to be the candidate and the manager at the same time. You can't do that. And said, if you'll run again, I'll learn how to do this. So she did. Uh, I did. I uh, took time off from uh, graduate school, ran the campaign, and uh, uh, was successful. And uh, then I got interested in just running campaigns and Knocked around doing that for a while, usually for free. Then somebody offered to pay me, and then next thing I knew, I was working uh, in the 1980 campaign as executive director of the Oklahoma Republican Party. Went on from there and uh, ran the Reagan worked for a congressman for a while. I ran the Reagan re-election campaign, Oklahoma in '84. Became the Republican state chairman uh, for four years in the late '80s. Uh, ran for the state senate myself and won that. Uh, then uh, came up to um, Washington in uh, the 91-92 cycle to be the executive director of the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, went back when that was over, ran Frank Keating's successful uh, run for governor. In the meantime, I'd had two partners that worked for me at the state party. We'd set up a political firm that's now 25 years old. and So we won a lot of elections that year besides Keating's. Uh, uh, including people like Tom Coburn and J.C. Watts, Steve Largent, Frank Lucas, later Wes Watkins. So we had the entire delegation, a bunch of state officials, Mary Fallon, who was then our lieutenant governor, uh, went on and uh, then uh, became Frank Keating Secretary of State and principal political advisor for four years and then back up to Washington to be chief of staff for the Republican National Committee during... Um, uh, George W. Bush's successful run in 2000, first time we won the presidency and carried both houses of Congress in the same election in 48 years, uh, and then uh, was just enjoying business, splitting time between Washington and Oklahoma, and uh, 
All of a sudden, my good friend J.C. Watts decides not to run for Congress again. It was a very competitive district back then, and uh, so I, I decided I could win it. I didn't think anybody else could. Won the Republican primary, and uh, you know I've been uh, in Congress since then, since January of 2003. So a lot more than you wanted to hear, but a lot of different uh, positions and along the way, whether it's consultant or party official or elected or appointed officials at different level of government. I've been very blessed to have been involved for a long time with a lot of good people. That's great. You don't often find uh, elected officials who have seen the kind of the inner workings of the can- of the elections from the uh, from the staffing perspective as opposed to the candidates' perspective. So. Yeah, it's pretty unusual, frankly. There are a few guys like a Haley Barber, who was governor of Mississippi, but also clearly one of the best political operatives right. and operators in the country, but there's not very many. So your platform on the economy and promoting uh, American ingenuity and entrepreneurship and limiting the overreach of government and unneeded regulations really resonates strongly with the vaping community. The majority of our members are small business owners. What what first brought vaping to your attention? Well, first on the small business perspective and then on vaping, I think maybe that's because I am a small business guy. I have a company that's 25 years old that three of us founded, two of us are still involved with it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, employs less than 50 people, but it's been very successful, uh, and it's, uh, you know, made us all money. But the problems along the way have usually been government getting in the way or the classic problems you have of how do you ensure continuity, how do you ensure quality, how do you get access to capital. So that's something I'm pretty familiar with, and I, I think those are the kind of people that set up those small engines that uh, really – the country owes everything too, and uh, they, they create jobs and wealth and opportunity uh, for a lot of Americans. And uh, frankly, they exemplify uh, a lot of the values associated with our country in terms of individual initiative and hard work. In terms of vaping, uh, in all full disclosure, I'm a classic cigar guy. <laughs> Frank Keating got me uh, hooked on cigars, and, and not hooked. I can certainly quit whenever I want, but I enjoy a good cigar. And some people associated with that industry, they were also caught up in this same problem with the predicate date, uh, came to me to, to visit largely about that and what could we do uh, and how devastating this was to regulate them really through the rearview mirror. That They have all these products that come online. Uh, if they have to go through an approval process, it'll bankrupt them because they're mostly small businesses too. Uh, and the vaping industry was part of that. It was caught up in exactly the same dilemma, and they'd mentioned that, and actually we kind of, you know, they brought here some ideas in terms of legislation. One of them included the vaping industry, and I thought, I, you know, when you just read about the how unfair the regulation is, particularly, you know, probably more so in the, in the case of vaping than anything else, because what evidence we do have so far, uh, both anecdotal and uh, statistical, suggest uh, how helpful this is in moving people off of tobacco uh, onto something that is much, much less harmful for them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, here we are regulating out of existence an industry that's helping just literally millions of people uh, move from, you know, tobacco, which is much more hazardous, uh, to uh, essentially a, a vaping, uh, you know, uh, habit if you want to use it, but it's one that's not harmful to your health. So uh, I just thought this was a case where clearly government was getting in the way of people on their own in the private sector finding a good solution, 
developing a product, marketing the product fairly, other Americans seeing the advantage. Uh, but that's a classic thing that it seems to me elected officials ought to be fighting against. Have you so since you've become somewhat of a unwitting champion of the vaping industry? Um, have you heard from the businesses and the constituents in your area? On I have. I have been astonished. <laughs> I did not realize, uh, you know, how widely spread the industry was and how many people, uh, you know, number one, benefited by it. I, I think that's the compelling thing to note in many cases. People come in a very heartfelt way and tell you the difference it made in their life as an individual. You know, this helped me kick a habit that really worried me about uh, what my future health would be or whether or not uh, this was damaging to my kids and my spouse was secondhand smoke. I mean, I've heard every story under the book from individuals, but then also, uh, you know, people that uh, in a very entrepreneurial way, you know, set up businesses in areas, usually without a lot of capital uh, and, uh, you know, in a non-traditional industry, it's very hard to get financing when you're going into a banker and to talk to him about something he's never heard of. I remember how hard it was in my business setting up a Republican political consulting business in a very uh, conservative and very uh, democratic Oklahoma in the 1980s. And if we'd had to rely on a banker, we wouldn't have ever gotten it done. I mean, we had to basically self-finance to set up the company and sustain it. So, yeah, I mean, I literally have had, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of people come out and then, you see this network around the country. I think you know, this is an industry that's grown up largely uh, without too much uh, you know, uh, government knowledge or oversight until relatively recent years. And I, I, I hesitate to use the word oversight. I don't want to say intrusion uh, because most members don't know a lot about it. They don't vape themselves. We've got a few like Duncan Hunter from California uh, who do and have actually been very helpful in explaining to the rest of us hey, this is how this works, and we all know Duncan had quite a cigarette habit. So, uh, you know, to see him moving on to something that's probably long-term better for him uh, and uh, what a zealous advocate he is of it, that's that's been helpful. But, uh, yeah, it's like most things. Uh, you get educated by your constituents. Do you, do you feel that a lot of your um, colleagues have, have started to, get more education and, and have more outreach from, from their constituents on this? They're on this beginning topic. to. Now, again, they're very hesitant. If you don't vape yourself, and in full disclosure, again, I don't, uh, then uh, it's, you know, there is a side here that, that, you know, basically sees it just as an extension of tobacco, a new way to get uh, young people addicted or whatever. But I don't think people that have actually looked at it believe that. And again, we have evidence like we have in the United Kingdom's Commission on Health study, where they say, hey, this is 95% better for you. Uh, and we don't have much in the way of uh, uh, contradictory evidence that suggests there's any bad health effects at this time. Uh, you know, then why is government, before it has, you know, strong evidence, you know, interfering here? And why are we setting barriers into the market uh, through the FDA and other entities that will prevent what appears to be a helpful product from reaching people and which will absolutely destroy lots of businesses that were started in good faith, uh, you know, by, by honest efforts by people that were trying to market a, a legal product that seemed to help people and that, uh, you know, they either enjoyed personally or saw an opportunity associated with. I mean, 
you know, government should not be regulating people out of business uh, before it even has any reason to do so. Yeah, well, that we, our organization, our members certainly agree with you on that. Uh, you know, we've been, <clears throat> our industry has rallied around your bill, H.R. 2058, which uh, most people listening to this podcast know it changes the predicate date. It's similar to the Cole Bishop Amendment, which was included in the Agriculture Appropriations Bill. Can you give us a little bit of the status of both of these, kind of the amendment and the bill, and and why why you introduced them, and kind of where you see them standing in the uh, political landscape these days? Uh, well, I introduced them both because I, I saw the regulatory arm of government doing what it so often does, and that's crush initiative uh, and impose its judgment uh, on people's judgment. We, you know, we have a lot of people in bureaucracies that assume rulemaking authority is the same as lawmaking authority. And to be fair, we've let it become that way. Uh, this, this leads you to a whole different discussion on what Congress needs to do. Uh, you know, one of the things the House passed a number of um, times and the Senate yet to pass is something called a RAINS Act. And it says anything that causes more than $100 million worth of damage or impact uh, on the um, uh, economy uh, has to be, if it's you know regulation has to first come to Congress before it can be implemented and Congress has to vote on it uh, and that way you can hold your congressman accountable and you can lobby him it's pretty hard to lobby a faceless bureaucrat this is a classic one of those cases where clearly we've got uh, the FDA getting ready to impose a regulation uh, that's going to cause well more than a hundred million dollars worth of damage to the economy uh, and yet nobody's going to be able to hold them very accountable for it in the way you can hold an elected member. You could say, hey, you do that, buddy. You're putting me out of my job. I'll put you out of your job. Uh, you know, you have a chance then. And so uh, I thought getting the bills up would at least generate some discussion. Uh, obviously, the great thing about the the uh, uh, Cole Bishop Amendment, I really want to thank Sanford uh, Bishop, uh, who's a Democrat from Georgia, great, great member of Congress and a great member of the Appropriations Committee. And Henry Cuellar, by the way, from Texas, also another Democrat that uh, was supportive in this, uh, make, making it bipartisan. I mean, they're listening to their constituents and they're thinking, hey, uh, you know, let's help with this amendment. And the amendment has a chance of, of you know, limiting what the FDA can do because it's attached to their spending bill. So it basically shuts down their spending uh, to enforce this rule until Congress actually acts. The the better fix would be the bill itself, because that's the permanent thing. It's not an annual thing, uh, and it would change the law and uh, give some certainty to the business. And that's what every business person needs. You need certainty in your taxes, certainty in your regulatory code, uh, but you also need uh, you know, Congress working with you in a meaningful way. So uh, I think they're both helpful measures uh, the uh, the Cole Bishop Amendment's the best one in the short term, uh, but that would be roughly the end of this year by the time we get that done, probably. Uh, if Assuming we can survive negotiations, we don't have a comparable vehicle in the Senate. And then, uh, but if we could get the, the legislation across the floor, that would be far, far better. Yeah. I, I got two follow-ups uh, on that. And, and you and I... I met with you in your office in Oklahoma a few weeks ago, and, and we had talked to you about the Cole Bishop Amendment. And there are some in our industry who are a little bit concerned 
about the battery language regulation. And, and I think there were some businesses that fear that we may be changing the predicate date, but this would give the FDA the ability to basically also shut down the industry via overly, re overly strict uh, battery mm -hmm. regulations. But that's certainly, in our conversation or, that we had a couple weeks ago, that was not your intention. No, not at all. And as a matter of fact, you know, I would urge people that have that concern to come help educate uh, Representative Bishop and myself. And we've got a guy on our staff, Steve Waskowitz, who works this issue and knows it really well. Because we can still change language. I mean, just because an amendment happens, if once we that just moves it on that vehicle, it's still got to get across the House floor or be negotiated with the Senate. And we're very open. Uh, to things because, because the intent here is to protect the industry. It's not to shut down, and it's certainly not to give uh, give additional uh, weapons, if you will, <laughs> to the bureaucracy to use against people. So we're all ears on that. The, the real aim here, again, though, is the, the industry does change, and you know, we did listen to what some of the critics had to say uh, last year. So we did add evidence, uh, or excuse me, language that would make it tougher for minors to engage in uh, uh, this activity and do things, you know, if there were obvious problems. And that was meant to shield the main, uh, you know, bill from criticism. And uh, look, nobody's, I know, that is in vaping, is interested in young people doing it. But, uh, uh, you know, we are interested in adults, uh, you know, having access to a legitimate product that helps them and that they enjoy and that yeah. we have no scientific evidence at this time suggests that it does anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, I that, that that's exactly it. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Congressman uh, Bishop and, and Quay, uh, Quayar. Quayar. And, also, and we also had, uh, you know, additionally, Representative, as I sit in Representative Colin Peterson's district today, he recently signed on, he was the first Democrat to sign on to the H.R. 2058 bill. Yeah, he did. He actually sought me out on the floor. Collins, one of the guys I really admire in Congress. I mean, he's a, certainly a very strong uh, Democrat, but a, a guy that w literally works across the aisle in a very productive way. And he's an honest, uh, you know, really thoughtful, straightforward kind of guy. And I think uh, this, he got educated by this by his constituents. And that's, that's the best way is to go talk to members. I mean, Right now, uh, we honestly need more Democrats on the bill and involved in the effort. And I think uh, some of the anti-tobacco groups have persuaded them that this is somehow some, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, head under the tent in terms of that. And it's not. It's not what it's meant to do at all. It's actually meant to make available to people in the vaping area, uh, you know, an alternative that seems to work and seems to be better for them. And then to protect other people, like the premium cigar industry, uh, from, you know, regulation that's just ridiculous. You should not be allowed to regulate retroactively. Nothing in the amendment of the bill presents the FDA from regulating. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it, it makes it easier because right now they have to regulate product by product, if you will. And there are thousands of varieties out there instead of class by class. But, uh, you know, again, it's, uh, you're imposing such horrific financial burdens on small industry that you're really, you might as well say we're, we're mandating that you shut down your doors because you're creating uh, financial conditions that are impossible for them to operate under. And so people end up losing their businesses, their savings, and the consumers lose access to a product that uh, 
uh, appears to be helpful to them and that many of them really, number one, enjoy, but number two, thinks it makes a positive difference in their health. I mean, government shouldn't be allowed to make those kind of decisions, particularly when it doesn't have the scientific evidence to back them up. Well, you know, on scientific evidence, we you mentioned earlier the Public Health England report that showed that vapor products are 95% less harmful. And that was followed up by the Royal College of Physicians, uh, the same group that published one of the first uh, harm of tobacco papers in 1962. Um, both of these groups, they even, the uh, Royal College of Physicians even went a step further in saying that they should be widely promoted as a uh, uh, cessation method. What do you think the, why do you think the sentiment is so different between uh, the U.K. and the U.S. on this issue? I think there's two factors. I mean, one is really a nanny state bureaucracy that, that I see in action all the time trying to, you know, tell Americans what they should do with assert authority where it hasn't been given to by Congress. I can give you, uh, I, you know, examples like, the uh, of all things, the, the National Labor Relations Board asserting jurisdictions over American Indian employees, something that uh, it didn't have in the original bill, which was written in 1935, didn't assert till 2004. Uh, nobody in Congress ever asked them to do it. Uh, they've lost a couple of lawsuits over it now. It, this is another example of that. I mean, it's example after example of the regulatory state deciding it knows what's best for Americans regardless of what they want to do and imposing upon it by, again, making their rules laws. Uh, so that's group number one. Group number two, I'm look, I have a lot of sympathy with people that are like tobacco-free kids or groups that are like that, but they should act only on the basis of evidence. You know, a, a government should not be, um, you know, assuming that it knows better uh, just because they don't like something. I think part of this nicotine is obviously associated with tobaccos, and people are concerned about that. But then prove to me something that nicotine is doing that's a harm. If it is, I'm, that's, that's a totally different discussion. But so far, you don't have the scientific evidence to prove that. Uh, and yet you're going ahead and you know destroying businesses and, and uh, uh, imposing your point of view without you know, legitimate evidence, and you're doing it through a bureaucracy. You're not doing it through legislation. If you want to come here and fight it out legislatively, let's have that fight. But, uh, again, I think it's the credibility from an earlier fight on tobacco uh, that may or may not be appropriate here. But, again, give us the evidence. That's what was done before. And, by the way, it's uh, it's had a big impact for, for the good. I'm not against that. But here so far, the evidence is the opposite. We've got creditable bodies uh, you know, uh, from the United Kingdom. This isn't like a third world country we're talking about here. Uh, that uh, has a long tradition of science and good public health practices, and uh, their official bodies are saying, wait. And by the way, we have some pretty distinguished scientists on this side of the Atlantic that are involved uh, in this stuff that are also offering dissenting views. Uh, so I think scientific opinion, insofar as we have it today, is pretty much on the side that vaping is a whole lot better for you than uh, tobacco and can, in many, many cases, uh, you know, help uh, people that have an addiction to tobacco move away from it to, with real health benefits. So, I, you know, again, to me, the bureaucracy opposing its opinion or other groups, however well-intentioned, deciding they know what's best for you, that you can't look at the evidence, that you can't make a decision yourself, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm just a bigger believer in individual liberty and the wisdom of the American people. Uh, 
than that. Uh, you, you let them make some decisions. So far, they're voting with their feet, and they're right. moving away from tobacco uh, toward vaping. I mean, that seems to me a good thing, not a bad thing. And I say that, as I said, as a, a self-admitted, uh, you know, uh, lover of cigars. I just I do. But I recognize that's not nearly as healthy as the guy that's vaping. And as you mentioned, some of those health groups, and we've as we've seen a trend now of more and more health advocates starting to understand how that February fifteenth, two thousand seven predicate date is problematic and could severely uh, hurt the harm reduction potential of vapor products. Um, the former director of the American Cancer Society, who was recently on this podcast, said that if, if we don't change the predicate date, we could lose about fifteen to twenty thousand small American businesses across the U.S. Um, your bills are a huge necessity uh, to protecting these small businesses. But now, as we as we are watching the Cole Bishop Amendment, we're hearing that there may be efforts to be a floor challenge to remove that from the appropriations bill. Do you do you think this is likely? Well, it's certainly possible. Now, we you know not to drag you know average law-abiding, uh, clear-thinking Americans into the complexities of the appropriations process in the political year. <laughs> Up here, but uh, there's a there's a chance that bill may not go directly to the floor. In other words, it may go directly into negotiation with the Senate, probably after the election, and then we would know whether or not we could leave that. And you know, part of this too is the administration's very much, I mean, uh, opposed to this. And now they're opposed to it because they think they ought to be able to regulate everything. I'm not surprised the president is backing up his regulators and, and that he appointed. But at some point somebody over there needs to stop and look at the evidence and say, before you stop something, before you engage in, in measures that are so catastrophic that we're going to destroy thousands of businesses and we're going to make it perfect, much more difficult for Americans to get off of tobacco by using a, uh, you know, a, a product that is both lawful and that all the evidence suggests helps them rather than hurts them. Uh, you know, that's maybe when you need to turn and question your own regulation. Say, guys, go go do some science over here, and if you got some evidence, then come back and we'll deal with it. In the meantime, let's not destroy an embassy uh, on the basis of what's really your prejudice, because you have no evidence. You know, and this is this is both prejudice and pride. A lot of them are very prideful at how dare you. You know, if you're not a scientist or you're not this or that, challenges. Well. First of all, the challenge is being mounted by the people. I mean, <laughs> you know, I got involved in this. I'm sure my colleagues have gotten involved in this. It's because their voters came and talked to them about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and said, hey, my personal experience is contrary to what this agency is trying to do. And here how it's, here's how it's going to impact my business. Here's what it's going to mean for us. Uh, and that's what gets lawmakers' attention. Uh, but, uh, you know, these bureaucracies sort of act like, well, you're you're really only here to give us power. You're not here to restrict the power that we have. Well, that's not what the Constitution says. Actually, we are here to defend basic constitutional liberties. And again, we should not have regulations on things, uh, you know, to this degree that destroy businesses and, uh, and uh, you know, keep a, a product that appears to be very helpful away without the strongest of evidence. And the evidence we have, again, is all on the other side of this so far. And it's not just evidence the industry has made up or some group that, you know, has a vested interest. It's evidence from health professionals in the United Kingdom. It's evidence from some of our own scientists here. It's 
evidence from people that have been active, as you mentioned, uh, in the prevention of cancer and, and the uh, rollback, if you will, of tobacco in American life. So maybe we ought to listen to them before we take draconian action that's going to have uh, terrible consequences. Yeah, so so for the, the many businesses and people listening that have been pushing hard and continue to work to talk to their representatives about supporting H.R. 2058 and the Cole Bishop Amendment, what what advice or message do you have to make sure that we can avoid last year's fate where it was kind of dropped out in, in the final negotiations and ultimately be able to keep the uh, predicate date change in whatever bill passes? Well, people need to talk to their members and particularly members on the Appropriations Committee, be they Democrat or Republican, particularly if you happen to be, uh, uh, you know, in uh, one of the leaders' district, the Speaker, you know, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, but also their Democrats. This should be a very bipartisan effort. Anything up here right now that is heavily partisan uh, or, or, or seen to be will not prevail. And uh, probably should not prevail, by the way, but uh, this should not be a partisan issue. This is not something that I see where Democrats or Republicans should have different views on based on their governing philosophy. They just need to look at the scientific evidence and the economic impact uh, and come down on the side of the freedom of the American people to use products that they want to use, absent compelling evidence that it's harmful, and the freedom of Americans to establish businesses and uh, you know, employ people, have an opportunity to, to enjoy the American dream when they're doing it in ways that, frankly, contribute to the economic prosperity and probably the overall health of the American people. Uh, you know, that's pretty productive. That's not something we want to stop. And, again, if you've got evidence that there's something here, okay, that's another matter, but you don't. And, uh, you know, I think, again, a lot of this is just, well, I'm sure if we keep looking, we'll find the evidence. Well, you know, so far, there's the people that have looked have found evidence that suggests this is a helpful practice uh, as compared to smoking, and certainly this is economically uh, uh, something that uh, is creating jobs, not destroying them, and creating them in ways that probably help us uh, deal with, uh, you know, a much more serious problem in terms of tobacco. So, you know, but people do have to contact. Uh, if, if members don't know, and again, most members don't vape. Most members, uh, you know, are not involved in the industry. The industry itself is not like, you know, uh, in any single place where you employ thousands of people. It's just the classic small business kind of enterprise. And most small business I know people are so busy running their business. They don't have a lot of time to have lobbyists or whatever. But in this case, they've got to start talking to their individual members. And you don't have to travel to Washington, D.C. to do it, all hours else. But catch them on the campaign trail. Go down to their district offices. Uh, you know, sit down with them. Educate their staff. That's how we learned about it, really. It was, you know, the, most members really uh, are educated by their voters. That's what voters do. You, you don't. I mean, sometimes you can come and tell them something they don't know, but more often they're telling you something you don't know because there's no way you can be involved in everything going on in your state or your district. And if you don't know, uh, you know, if nobody's educated you, well, then it's easier. Well, I guess I'll just listen to the FDA, or I'm sure the administration knows something about it. Well, in this case, I don't think they do. And I'd rather, you know, at the end of the day, uh, do what my voters ask me to do and my constituents who have practical experience with this 
and listen to somebody up here that, well, I don't have any evidence, but I sort of feel it's wrong, and if we let it get a foothold, it'll be worse. Well, it's already gotten a foothold, and uh, this idea of destroying an industry and keeping Americans from having access to a product that helps them deal with a tobacco addiction, I think, is just it just doesn't stand up under scrutiny and, um, you know, give me the evidence, give me the logic. So far, all the evidence and logic I've seen has argued for this industry to be allowed to exist and and to uh, continue to help people and and to continue to be part of our economic growth. Well, Congressman, I would like to thank you for your time and sharing your thoughts today and not only uh, for your leadership position on this important issue to our industry, uh, which can certainly protect thousands of jobs and small businesses across the country if it is enacted, but but also your effort as our organization has reached out to you with uh, sometimes concerns or clarification on the language. You and your staff have been more than willing to get back to us and, and enter when there are issues, enter into a dialogue to make sure that we are doing what we can to protect this industry and protect the small business owners. Well, thank you. Thanks for your efforts, because I think uh, you know what you're doing is actually helping the American people have access to an important product, and frankly, helping people that, in all good faith, you know, started businesses and made real efforts and real investments, and, and now have the danger through no fault of their own of having those businesses destroyed by what's really capricious and arbitrary action by a regulatory agency. With that, I would like to thank Congressman Cole for sharing his thoughts with us today, not to mention taking a leadership position on this important issue, which, if not enacted, will certainly decimate many of the small businesses that make up our industry. Until next time, thanks for everyone for listening. You can also visit Safada.org to download this podcast, as well as past shows, including Safada's Top 10 Vapor Facts, Demystifying Misconceptions About the Vapor Industry, And please don't forget to follow Safada on Facebook and on Twitter.